table is set for another Literary Roundtable, where we serve you the perfect pairing of author and expert. No book or subject is off limits at the only place on the net where you can join in the discussion and ask our guests any questions you like. So pull up a chair and join the discussion. Welcome to the Literary Roundtable. I'd like to welcome everyone to part three of our five-part series on the Literary Roundtable we're calling A House United, Understanding America and Each Other. The purpose of this series is to discuss the many reasons why our countries become so divided and how we might begin the process of healing and bringing our country back together again. Today, our guests include author Antonio Elmali. He's the author of the Civil War and Reconstruction novel, titled The Ones They Left Behind, which, as I've mentioned before, is a powerful story about the journey one Civil War veteran takes to heal a divided nation. It's set in post-Civil War America and contains many parallels between America during Reconstruction and America today. We talked about many of those parallels in earlier discussions, and we may very well discuss more of those parallels in the coming hour. He is also the author of A House United, and you can find out more about Antonio and his books at antonioamali.com. Also joining the roundtable today is Jim Campbell, a UB Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Buffalo SUNY. His principal area of research interest is American politics, particularly American public opinion and elections. He's published widely on the subject, including more than 80 scholarly articles and four books. His most recent book is titled Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. And that book was recently named by Choice Magazine as one of the outstanding academic titles of 2016. Welcome to you both today. Glad to be with you. Me too. I kind of made that sound like bachelor number one and number two on the dating game. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Now, in our earlier discussions on the Literary Roundtable with John Blake of CNN.com and Dr. Vincent Hansen, we discussed many of the parallels between America during the Civil War and America today. We touched on topics of race, religion, and income inequality, among other topics. And we're going to talk a lot today about polarization. And I think I'd like to start with the polarization that began just prior to the Civil War and then move on to how and why we are so polarized today. So, Antonio, I'll begin with you. And, Jim, feel free to jump in. What do you think were some of the major issues that precipitated the Civil War? Also, do you think it was inevitable that we would eventually have a Civil War? I think the two issues that stand out in my mind are the issue of slavery and the issue of the relationship between the federal government and the states. Uh, these two points, one in economic um, with, you know, incredibly powerful political ramifications for the formation of the republic, and the other political uh, stress point that as old as the republic itself, were re really never resolved. I mean, you can see in the congressional comp compromises in 1820 and 1850, an attempt to kind of kick the can down the road and uh, essentially try to figure out for some later generation how to how to solve the intractable problem of slavery, especially as related to slavery spreading into the new territories. I think the war started to become more about, the conditions of the war started to become more about how to stop the uh, issue of slavery in the new expanding territories and leaving slavery alone in the in the states where it existed. Yeah. I think certainly that was Lincoln's initial uh, outlook on it. Those two are those jump, you know, in my mind as as really bedrock uh, sources of conflict and to some degree uh, not resolved today. Right. I you know, I think in the pre-Civil War period is what what I find very interesting is how much effort was put into avoiding polarization over those issues that the there's all kinds of compromises the that that and even on the eve of the civil war um you know you didn't have really a, a you know a anti-slave versus um you know pro-slavery uh, polarization there it was it was as you said about extension of slavery and uh, and popular sovereignty and uh, sort of sort of halfway measures on both sides so I mean, they really were making a, a serious effort at avoiding the showdown. 
the the ultimate polarization. Was that, do you think, more for financial reasons? Nobody wanted to get into a protracted war because it was going to cost money? Or well, I think, was yeah. this an ideological thing? Well, I think it was a political thing uh, that, you know, they just wanted to, I mean, I, I think they saw the, the writing on the wall if you know if, if they couldn't come to some kind of accommodation that was uh, that could hold you know, ultimately it would dissolve into into warfare so they were you know making every effort i think some of the pre civil war presidents get something of a well some of them get something of a bad rap for for trying to um, you know, stave off the, the ultimate uh, conflict were they working to appease the south well, I don't think they would have thought of that. I don't think they would have considered it that, but, you know, maybe in retrospect. I think, to your point, Jim, about trying to find some kind of compromises, as much as they may have tried to craft a po- political compromises, the, the fundamental divisions were, I think, much more rooted in, in the economics of the slavery system. And nobody wanted to, to disrupt that because when I look at the whole chain of economic transactions that slavery triggered, everything from, you know, the slave ship owners to the railroads transporting the cotton to the textile manufacturers making the cotton and exporting it, they're all taking incredible advantage of this fundamentally cheap source or, in fact, free source of labor. So everybody, to one degree or another, I think, had their hands in the lucrative spoils of slavery, and I think there was a there had to be some serious economic pushback over anything that threatened it. Well, I think and, that's right, and that's you know that's sort of set up the uh, fundamental conflict here. But I mean, that can be conceivably it could have been resolved so that uh, there'd be greater stability and both sides wouldn't suffer the losses that they uh, that they ultimately suffered in, in that war. But I think what happens with polarization is often, uh, as we see today, it, it, it builds intransigence, uh, and um, you know people don't see the value of compromise and uh, and push for uh, more of what they want whether it's uh, what economic issues or uh, civil rights issues or you know even back in those days uh, slavery or its extension do you think it was inevitable once the north decided slavery was not good that we would actually get into an actual war or do you think there was a possibility where it would only have been a political divide I think my guess is that it was inevitable because the large one of the larger contexts of this struggle was that you had two fundamentally different economies fundamentally going in different directions I think by the by the 1850s or early 60s, a lot of the land in the South had been farmed out. You know, my reading suggests that tobacco and cotton really take a tremendous toil, uh, toll of the soil. And you have to have fairly enlightened farming methods to replenish it, which the planters, you know, just ignored. So a lot of the land that they had counted on was simply not able to turn over the kind of yields that they had been used to, which is why I think slavery became as much a a livestock business of actually growing slaves and selling them almost like cattle as it was a source of free labor. Contrasted that, which is an unsustainable model of economic growth, is the North, you know, becoming much more industrialized, you know, more sophisticated transportation systems, communication systems, manufacturing bases, all leading to a stronger economic base, still using cheap labor because it was the immigrants coming from Europe who were who were manning most of those, you know, those low low paying jobs, but nevertheless creating an industrial base that the South just either refused to or couldn't keep up with. So I think it was in that sense, I don't know how they could have avoided some kind of a conflict because you had two ways of life that were fundamentally going in opposite directions. I, I'm a little bit uneasy with the inevitability contention that because I think most of these, I mean, certainly they made lots of effort. Lots of smart people controlling both parties made all kinds of efforts at, at achieving a compromise. Nothing stuck. But I, I don't know whether it was intrinsic to the to the issue or intrinsic to the attitudes and sort of short-sightedness that was attached to to those issues and that I you know I think if both sides had realized the the high cost that would be paid in in the civil war they might have been more more uh, giving at the uh, at the bargaining table with each other 
but they weren't, and you know, the hotheads um, prevailed in the South, and uh, and the war was on. So I think that's the a lot about polarization is not so much about I think the difference between attitudes. I mean, those were there, and as they are today, uh, very you know very distinct uh, perceptions of how government ought to be run and how what policies ought to be adopted or shouldn't be adopted. It's the it's the approach to dealing with the other side, I think that's um, that's crucial to the extent of conflict. And if if compromise is um, set aside as um, you know not not possible not a possibility that everybody wants their way or the highway, then things escalate and get out of hand. Do you think some of that inflexibility and tractability has a religious background to it? That when you're talking about belief systems and you morph them into political attitudes, but you come with a fundamental sense that to compromise with people who you might even perceive to be sinners is, is a sin itself. I mean, it, this is obviously a big generalization, but do you think that yeah. that contributes to this intractability that we're experiencing? Well, I'm not sure it's that closely tied to religion it's, itself, although I mean, sort of demonizing the other side, whether you're religious or not. Um, liberals demonizing conservatives and conservatives demonizing liberals. And that, that's a, a big part of it. I, I think a, a, a larger source comes from communicating primarily with like-minded people and people on both sides. And we, I think going back to the Civil War, this is you know, geographically what was happening. And, you know, Southerners were talking to other Southerners, you know, Northerners to Northerners, and both sides overestimate the popularity of their own views and the righteousness of their own views. When people don't talk across the d dividing lines, I think then it's it's easy to see the other side in, in terms of, uh, of, a, of an evil. You're on the good side and they're on the evil side. So I, I don't think it's a, you know, the religion so much as sort of a religious fervor that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, attached to a, a narrow communication network. And that can only arise, I think, in an atmosphere of fear. If you feel you're threatened, your values are threatened, you naturally gravitate to sources, perceived sources of strength, which in this case are people who share your opinions. I think that's a, a good part of it, I, but I think it's a lot of it's natural. Uh, people are, you know, most Americans um, at any time uh, see politics as only a peripheral concern, and so they they want to feel comfortable in their views. They don't want to argue or challenge, have their views challenged, and that means largely listening to people, friends or, or newscasts or wherever that, that uh, are confirming of their, their views, that don't pose an alternative view of the nation. And I think going back to the Civil War, that's not, that, you know we didn't have a, a big communications network, but, you know, uh, Geography became more important as a result in that case. Well, during the Civil War, it's interesting that you bring up the media because the importance of the telegraph, illustrations, photography, people were clamoring for news about the war, and now some might say devolved into our media today, uh, kind of started back then. They had stringers going out to different battlefields, some reporting truthfully, some reporting not truthfully, and censorship coming into play. Do, do you think that the media reflects public attitude and political attitudes, or do political attitudes and public attitudes impact media? Well, I think it's mostly the media is, is a business that is looking to satisfy customers. And so they're anticipating what their readership would want to read and um, and want to hear. And uh, and I think that's always been the case. And so I, I, I don't think the media really creates a opinion as much as it is sort of a, a cheerleader for, for whatever side uh, involved in that conflict. Antonio, do you think the same applied during the Civil War? I think that there was a lot of uh, promoting of causes through newspapers. I think that, first of all, I think that the, the amount of literacy itself was astonishing for a country as young as ours. Uh, but a lot of people were just really religiously attached to reading what was probably a weekly uh, newspaper as well as the, the daily ones. And these uh, organs of political and social opinion were 
we're blasting away uh, hard, hard issues and hard positions on issues, and that's they knew that's what the readers wanted to read. They wanted that was the red meat. Is you know typically you know how do we how do we create a uh, a contest here? How can we make this a, a bit of a competition? And uh, so they were glad to find issues, and of course North South was a natural one because right. people were not traveling back and forth like they do today, so there was none of the kind of cultural immersion or even contact. So everything was in an, in an echo chamber, and I think that the political powers that be took full advantage of, of newspapers. Um, to but I think when you said that you know they, they gave people what they wanted to read, uh, in some ways, you know, the, the whole question of leadership has always been part of this. Are presidents leading us to be a, being a more polarized nation? Or is the media? And I think oftentimes it's. I think in general it's the reverse that leaders and the media are trying to anticipate the reactions of their readership or their or their voters. They become not so much independent forces for the conflict, but are um, are basically giving it voice that they anticipate is already out there, sort of bringing out those latent opinions that, that aren't so well-formed in the public but are there. There's such a fascination with being objective, yet everything we've been talking about is extremely not. <laughs> it's extremely subjective, you know, in terms of covering stories and, and you know, promoting agendas that will fire up a readership. Do you think that's a, a strange sort of contrast between what the media would like, how it would like to be judged on its objectivity and the, and the, and the reality that they're as subjective as anybody else? Well, I think the media gets a, gets a lot of power and is seen as legitimate and is listened to because it maintains or promotes a, a, a view of itself that it's objective. But then it uses that as much as it can get away with, and I think <laughs> uh, in promoting a particular point of view. So it's up to the up to the um, readers and uh, to uh, you know just as a president would say, I'm representing all the people, but of course no president represents all the people. They represent their constituencies. They're 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 people who vote voted for them, and I think that's that's what happens in this case that they they their legitimacy is based on this objectivity or broad based representation, but in fact they're using as uh, the, that power to um, promote or um, Lead, as I said, uh, you know, a particular segment of the of the public. Jim, you wrote in a in an op-ed piece that was great, by the way. You're the first paragraph. I like the review. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> the op-ed is called "The Source of Americans' Political Polarization." It's us. So Google that. Um, okay. In that particular op-ed piece, you open the op-ed by saying gun control, abortion, fracking, climate change, immigration, school vouchers, health care, the list of issues that Americans are at one another's throats about seem endless. Does that still hold true today? Is that really what Americans are polarized about? I think all, it's uh, our polarization is exhibited in all of those issues. I think that the core of it is uh, about government and uh, fundamental differences between liberals and conservatives about uh, the usefulness of government and and how soon you should resort to governmental solutions to these problems, what what problems can be addressed or shouldn't be addressed by government. Uh, and in all of those all of those issues that I mentioned were, were instances in which that uh, fundamental Difference in perceptions come into play. I mean, I, I think that's the that's the uh, the core of most of our uh, polarization over time. It go back to the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians, um, and and it was really about uh, the the role of government. And you know, it's it's never been one too that uh, that's between anarchists and totalitarians. It's a, you know, it is there is a, a practical. Moderation in in all of this on on both sides, so it's not uh, the ultimate kind of, of, of polarization, but but that's the core of it, I think. Government and how how quickly you resort to it, how much you rely on it, and how reticent you are in in using it. And speaking of government, when do you think it's clear that the two parties are irreconcilably split? Could could the two party system that we have today split permanently? Well, I, I guess it's. Um, kind of depends on what you mean by split 
permanently. Uh, I mean, they are divided. The question is, how, how did they come to uh, working terms on um, issues as they arise? And those are temporary agreements that, um, you know, just we just lurch from one issue to the next. The polarization in our country, I don't think, is going away, uh, and, and that's not going to be – we're not going to be able to reconcile liberals and conservatives. And, you know, there's not going to be this come by a, mo a moment where everybody pulls together. So I think we have to learn to how to best live with polarization without arriving where they uh, uh, did in 1860, get some kind of understanding about the necessity of compromise and that it's actually a, the way we can function as a society and as a government. It's inherent in the description of government as a system of checks and balances. Those those words, checks and balances, are all about compromise. Exactly. The, the problem is that, that a lot of people on both sides think <laughs> that the other side ought to compromise more right. with them. <laughs> and they've got so, to check them at every, at every, at every opportunity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everybody has a different idea about what's an acceptable compromise, and unless there's some overlap there, you're really up the creek. So you have to put some pressure on... On, uh, and boy, the health care issue uh, uh, that we're dealing with now is uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. That's, a, I think, a classic case where the two sides are, are really struggling to try to find some common ground. The Democrats didn't have to do that back in uh, 2009, and I think that set up a, a kind of a, a, a long-term issue until we can uh, arrive at something that's... Uh, at least has an element of bipartisanship in it. And if you go back and look at, uh, there's been studies of the major legislation in, in, in America since World War II, and almost all of it, I believe all, pretty much all of it except the uh, Affordable Care Act, had, had bipartisan support of some at some level. And this was a case where it was strictly one one party uh, one party policy. And that's not healthy, I think. I mean, that's you need some buy-in from both sides. Do you? I have a question. Do you uh, have a sense why we have migrated to a two-party uh, alignment when historically we're a country that had, you know, not dozens, but we had many parties uh, for, for over, over the course of our history. You know, they came and went, but they they sprung up. They had organizations. They ran slates of candidates. They were present at at, at their, you know in elections and. And they represented, uh, you know, the voice of uh, certain constituencies. That seemed to be almost like an American tradition, almost. And yet, here we are with all these fractured interest groups, all yelling and screaming for airtime. And there's only two parties. It just seems to me to be, to your question, Joe, earlier about the inevitability of some kind of a of a split or morphing or something, whether it's a third party or the Two parties, you know, suffer some kind of internal uh, reorganizations. I don't know, but well, can you I, comment on that, yeah. Jim? I mean, I, I yeah. just don't understand how we got from being a tradition of having lots of parties to well, these two. Well, I, I guess I take exception with the idea that there's a tradition of lots of parties. There are always lots of minor parties, but we really have had a system since the uh, since 1800 of, uh, of a two-party system with you know, we set aside the era of good feeling um, during Monroe's um, presidency around that time, but otherwise we've we've had the um, the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans, and then later the Whigs versus the Democrats, and the Whigs were uh, supplanted by the Republicans uh, and the Democrats, and and if you go look at look back at uh, representation in Congress or, or presidential voting, you see. Uh, with a few exceptions, you know, the progressives at the turn of the century, the populists in the 19th century had a few uh, representatives, you know, got, a, I don't know, 5 or 10% in the House. Uh, but otherwise, it's been a two-party system. And I think there's a good reason for that. I mean, it's our electoral system, for, for one, you know, first-past-the-post you know, winner uh, in congressional districts and in Senate seats and and then, of course, you know, it has to boil down to a single president. Uh, and there's, there's very little room for proportional representation. I personally think that's, a, that's terrific because the only difference between a proportional representation system 
and uh, the, our two-party system is when the coalition, the governing coalition is formed. In a two-party system, the coalition's formed before the election. In a multi-party system, it's formed after the election. When voters really can't then say much about it, you know, uh, there has to be a, a governing uh, coalition. So even in, uh, in 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 nations that uh, you know that have a proportional multi-party system, it ultimately boils down to the government, a coalition of parties in the government, and those in opposition. So there's sort of a natural duality here. I think that's that's uh, important and, ha- and has other consequences that are good. It provides some clarity to uh, accountability. I mean, Republicans are in charge now. If you don't like what's happening, then vote them out. And Democrats are in charge after 2008 and 2012. Um, so that there's some clarity that that's provided that you might not get in a multi-party system. And as to the, the latter part of your question, I think is a, is a third party likely. I think in the polarized politics we have now, it's extraordinarily unlikely. And the reason for that is that nobody on a liberal does not want to be responsible for helping to inadvertently helping to elect a conservative president. And a conservative likewise doesn't want to be. Uh, complicit even by by wasting their votes to to elect a, a liberal. So I think the stakes are higher on both ends of the ideological spectrum, and uh, I think because of that, third parties are are uh, pretty much a sideshow in in American politics. And yet you hear, you know, blocks of voters being disaffected, saying there's no room for me in this tent. You know, I don't feel like there's anybody representing my point of view, whether it's progressive Democrats or conservative Republicans. It doesn't really matter. The, the point is that they feel disenfranchised from even within their own supposed party affiliation. Do, do you I, think yeah. the party system can can absorb that level of disaffection and integrate? Well, it? I think it seems like I think one thing you have in this well, when you have as much polarization as we've had, I think the spectrum kind of spreads out more. And so whoever is elected, you're going to be a little, or most voters are going to be a little further away from them than they had been. Uh, that said, when American parties became more polarized from the, in the 80s and 90s and the, in the 21st century, turnout actually increased and more people strongly identify as Democrats or Republicans, and split-ticket voting declined. So people who are polarized, and people on the left and the right, are amazingly somewhat happier about you know getting represented, and uh, than they had been during a period of dealignment in the 1970s. But they're um, uh, the people in the center feel abandoned. And that may be what you're what you're picking up. You're in, in in a you know huge democracy as we have with so many different views. Somebody's going to be left out. Uh, there's no way. You know, that just has to. That's just the math of it. It seems like there's no room for moderates anymore. Well, I think there is. Uh, you know, they they do hold a lot of sway over over policy. Maybe a disproportionate amount of sway. You know that uh, you know the Republicans can uh, are trying to satisfy their conservative base, and Democrats are trying to satisfy their liberal base. But in order for either of them to govern, they need to reach out to those who are more centrist or less ideological. They may not be perfectly in the center. In fact, most studies now indicate there's in Congress that there's no overlap ideologically between the parties, that the, the most liberal Republican is still more conservative than the least liberal Democrat. So there's, you know, that's the middle's been kind of hollowed out, but still the parties have those who are somewhat more pragmatic and some those who are more ideological, and so uh, you have to win, you have to keep the whole party together in order to uh, have a chance at, at affecting policy. How does each party pander, if you will, to the screaming left and the screaming right, <laughs> and still bring in the moderate? Well, I think the key, the key in all of this is, is uh, well, compromise is the first thing. You know, you have you you have to convince both sides. You have to convince the the screaming the banshees on the left and the right that they won't get anything if they insist on perfection. 
you know, if they insist on ideological purity, uh, it might be good at fundraisers, but they're not going to get policy change. And you, I think the rest of the party has to you know, make it known that if, if they don't, if they aren't successful, it's because they were uh, abandoned by, by ideological extremists, by purists. Uh, the other, the other, uh, I think, way to, to get some unity out of this is by uh, actually delivering results. You know, if, if there's a, if, even though we're, we're we're talking about the conflict in society uh, now and, and before the uh, Civil War, but there's still an awful lot that unites Americans, that unit that, that all Americans want: peace, prosperity, clean air, good schools. And, if, and, and so if you can deliver on those what political scientists call valence issues, then I think you can, can uh, buy a lot of credibility for your perspective on government, that it works. Right. I mean, ultimately, Americans are pretty pragmatic people. And if it works, it works, whether it's coming from the left or the right. I was just going to say that I think that in order to find that, that common ground, you have to find issues that knit, that actually organically attract you know, a wide base of a wide group of people. We've right. been devoid of any conversations around the things that can transcend narrow interests on certainly on economic uh, on an economic level, and we've been caught up in the what I would consider the fire fire eating social issues that that are important, but that at the end of the day aren't really bread and butter issues. I mean, they just aren't. Right. And that distraction continues, I think, to create a, a sense of extremism in both parties because it's easier to grab onto a, an emotionally charged issue and get people riled up about it than it is to talk about boring things like budgets and how do you put more food on the table and how do you drive uh, job growth. Um, right. and, and I think that's the, you know, you need an issue or a set of issues that can knit disparate groups together because they see some kind of self-interest inherent in that issue. I'll be honest, I'm part of the problem because I glaze over when they start talking. Math is not my subject. So when you start talking budgets, uh, I glaze over. Now, you can ask me about who should go into which bathroom. You can talk to me about gay rights. You can talk to me about civil rights. You can talk to me, you know, about income inequality. And those are things I have an opinion about, but I am incredibly ignorant when it comes to budget issues. And I, my feeling, and probably incorrectly so, is that we vote people in, they're supposed to be up on budget issues, and, you know, they should just figure it out. When it comes to the social issues, that's when my voice starts getting strident. It only takes a social catastrophe like a depression to change that around. I, and I think that's the key. It's not so much the issues as in terms of positions that parties have. Even, even if parties have uh, are, want to talk about budgets, it's going to boil down to the still the left-right division. You know, liberals want more spending on social uh, domestic programs. Conservatives want more on defense. And you're going to, you know, you're always going to have those. Just the expression of our underlying polarization. It's the results that ultimately will shift this one way or the other, I think, that a depression or a, a, a more hopefully a sustained period of growth and peace. You know, if, there, if a president could get the economy or pursue policies, whatever those policies are, that could, that, you know, have uh, a growth rates of, um, you know, 4% or so a year rather than the 2% that we've had in recent years. And actually take terrorism off the, the front pages, I think that center would gravitate to that president's party. And that the ideological or the philosophical views of that president would be given a, a second look. And, well, something's working here. And maybe there's a, a reason why we, we should be supporting some continuity. Or, you know, if it was a depression and, and, more, and even uh, a worse international situation, and maybe we, we need to get them out, get the in-party out, and uh, give more serious attention to the uh, to the out-parties philosophy. And I think that's what's happened in, in our realignments in the past. You know, the Great Depression in, uh, you know, in 1929, uh, you know, set, paved the way for 
Roosevelt and the and the New Deal and eight, the the panic in uh, 1894 you know, set things up for Republican uh, rule. So I think a lot of the, even though we tend to focus on the the uh, philosophical differences differences here, I think the, the the tipping point is really controlled by performance. You know, the record of the in party, one way or the other. Yeah, which is for the life of me, I can't understand that why there wasn't a more profound backlash around the 08 uh, fiasco. You know, when you think about 11 million people losing their homes, it's, right. just, it's, it's an inconceivable number of people because with that home goes income, the job, I mean, who knows where these folks ended up living. You know, that, that level of social disruption and, and destruction is is almost incalculable in terms of dollars lost. But right. But there wasn't, there didn't seem to be this kind of, you know, the kind of backlash or the kind of reaction than, that one might expect when a, a major, major economic debacle hits fundamentally I hits think, the middle class and, yeah, and drives right. them into the lower class, you know. Right. And I, th- I think the key to that, I think, th- I think there was an opportunity for Democrats at that point to, um, to affect some substantial permanent change, but they, they didn't deliver. And, you know, so, I mean, if, if there, if you'd had a, a rebound in the economy, and if there was a sense that things had turned around, otherwise with with terrorism and so forth, I think that would be uh, they'd be in a very different situation. But in 2016, the exit polls showed, you know, after eight years of, of President Obama, the exit polls had 62% saying, and this is this is these are the voters that gave Hillary Clinton the majority of the vote of the popular vote. 62% said the economy was poor or not doing very well. And I think 67% said the country was moving in the wrong direction. I guess all of these um, changes in the record can provide the other party an opportunity to prove itself. And I think in this case, they didn't. And it is probably, you know, I think maybe one political mistake that President Obama made that actually contributed to polarization and uh, resulted in, in the Democrats losing this opportunity was focusing more on the health care issue than on changing, getting the economy up and running. I think the stimulus package I, 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 it just didn't didn't really stimulate that much economic growth. So it, you know, maybe it was a failed policy uh, or a short, it had a short-term impact or whatever. It, it just was not did not uh, f- fulfill people's expectations. Well, I think his he was also, you know, my take as I think history will probably be over time not as uh, generous about his legacy as he would hope. Uh, he certainly left his own party in a bit of a shambles and certainly didn't do anything to, from from what I can gather, to build a, a Democratic Party infrastructure. They just have they lost considerable ground the entire term of his incumbency, which is exactly what a president is not supposed to do. They're the head of the party, so. Right. He didn't leave that. He didn't leave his own house in in order. And I think this this idea of being of the legacy just took over. You know, fixing an economic crisis is nowhere near as uh, dramatic as you know you know having the first be the first president to uh, uh, pass something resembling the first step towards universal health care. And his choice of those two hard issues to tackle said a lot about you know how he wanted to be remembered and unfortunately i think he as you point out i think he blew a, a major opportunity to to uh make some profound breakthroughs in fixing the uh the excesses of a, of a financial system that had just gone completely haywire and out of control and instead chose to focus on something that would be a lightning rod for massive amounts of disagreement and I don't understand that that judgment, but that's right. And I think part of it, it goes back to priorities and choosing priorities, probably short-sightedly. I, I think, or at least from a political standpoint. But part of it, I think, goes back to not understanding what went what went wrong in that financial system meltdown. And uh, I mean, I, even today, I don't I don't think you get agreement from people, which is over why the system melted down. Some people point to Wall Street greed. I remember John McCain, a Republican, uh, in 2008 saying it was about Wall Street greed. And, and my reaction was, 
Wall Street greed. Wall Street's always greedy. That's their job <laughs> to be greedy. So what's what was different? What's <laughs> new about that? Yeah. And uh, that's they're working for us to be greedy to help our four hundred one ks and everything else. So I mean that that was not it. I think it was a, I think it was a complex, uh, a more complex issue that was actually tied in with governmental policy regarding uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the housing bubble and. So not understanding that, I think there was a misunderstanding of the economy and what it would take to bring the economy back. And I think, and also I think you the price of that. In inheriting a lot of lot of alumni from uh, from the Clinton administration uh, for whatever right. reason, he he needed to default back to the some of the very folks who were supposedly minding the store when things started to go south, and uh, hmm. and you know. I guess he just was inexperienced. I mean, a lot of presidents come to that with, if there's an area where they're most lacking, it's in the area of economics, you know, right. understanding the relationship between, uh, you know, the interlocking parts of the economy and what it takes to keep it in a relative state of balance. Right. And I'm not sure why that is, but it seems to be a, a recurring weakness of yeah. presidents. I think they judge by, by pure results. You know that that is, if the economy is going well, that must mean that it, that they're doing something right. And sometimes the economy is doing well despite them, not because of them. And so they end up end up following the uh, wrong policy. I mean, the Clinton, I think, was a classic in this case. I mean, he, everybody thought Clinton was uh, could walk on water when it came to the economy, but you know, in retrospect, it was clear that there were. Two large bubbles. There was the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble, and and they both eventually burst. Uh, so it was kind of a not not a solid not not growth based on um, on more permanent uh, structural aspects of the economy. But I should say that you know the Democrats are in, and you're right. The Democrats are in worse shape after Obama than they were before. But he does have a, he has established a big reservoir of support among young people. And despite what the elders believe is, is not a, an, an admirable record, you know, Democrats still do, are doing very well among young people, and that's sort of money in the bank because those people aren't voting at the same rates that they will in another 10 years, and uh, so that may be a little silver lining on the Democrats' cloud. So are we bound to pendulum back and forth from we give the Republicans a chance, we hate what they do, so we vote in Democrats? <laughs> We give them a chance. We hate what they do, and it just swings back and forth. Will we ever reach a point, do you think, of stasis where both parties are reasonable, they're looking out for the country and its people and the financial things and the social issues? Is it just intrinsic to our our government that we swing left, swing right, swing left, swing right? Well, I think we're we're in a period of polarized, Partisan parity. <laughs> so, so that means I mean everything's very close. We, you know, since 1984, neither party has received as much as 55% of the two-party vote nationally. And it used to be the range was 38 to 62%, and now it's 45 to 55%. So it's we have hyper-competitive uh, elections, which means a little tilt. You know, you, you're a little stronger in the economy uh, on an election year. One party can win, um, you know, vice versa. So the other party wins. So I think uh, we'll bounce back and forth because of that parity unless one party is successful on these, uh, you know, delivering peace and prosperity. I think that was the, the key. I think, uh, you know, the last time uh, uh, we had the, uh, a party with three consecutive terms, was the Reagan-Bush era, and Bush in 1988, you know, was elected because Reagan had left the country in fairly good position uh, on peace and prosperity. So we haven't had that since, and we've been bouncing back and forth as a result. Is there a reason to believe or to hope that ultimately we will come together, or is polarization, are we stuck in that wheel of samsara of polarization where this is just how life is forever in this kind of government? Is there hope that we will okay. come together? You're, you're speaking as a moderate, I think. Which that would I, be cool. No, <laughs> okay, yeah. 
<laughs> I, I think not. I think polarization is our normal state. And I think the period uh, before polarization, before the late 60s, was the unusual condition for American politics. And I think it was based on two factors. That is the the very moderate politics of the 50s and early 60s was, uh, and I think Mort, Mort Saul, the uh, comedian at the time, said, uh, you know, we have this drastic choice between Eisenhower's uh, moderation and uh, Stevenson's gradualism. Pull the holes in his shoes too. <laughs> right. So everything was kind of comfortably a little left of center, a little right of center. Well, I think what was behind that was a generation that had gone through the Depression and World War II and the, the early Cold War. And that was those were events that were extremely unifying. Other things, they set other differences in perspective. And so differences between the left and the right uh, could, be, uh, could be seen in more uh, civil terms and, and not demonized. In addition to that, I think we had a party system left over from the Civil War, which involved two heterogeneous parties, ideologically heterogeneous parties. I mean, the Democrats had a non-Southern liberal wing, but and but they also had a conservative segregationist Southerners, and that was a big part of the Democratic Party. Republicans had uh, some uh, Western conservatives, but they had uh, Northeastern Rockefeller liberals. So that kind of muted differences, uh, the, the differences that were out there, and and made compromise uh, really a necessity, uh, and 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 made it more palatable and possible. I mean, there was a, there was a conservative coalition that, you know, Congressional Quarterly Weekly Report uh, routinely counted the successes or failures of. That was a bipartisan group: Southern conservatives, Democrats, and. Northern uh, Republicans. You know, now that's unthinkable. But you know, it, it, that kind of bipartisanship rarely happens, and um, it's only happen happens at the margins. So I think now we we're we're in a more unfortunately maybe in a more normal state of polarization. I don't like it. <laughs> the other context is the calamities that you mentioned. You know, compromise is more likely to be forged out of a sense of of profound urgency because there is no choice and you better produce some kind of a result because it's costing people either their their dollars or their lives or both mm-hmm. and so the, the the consequences of not doing something are are dire so I mean it seems like we haven't had a unifying I mean I hate to think that it, it takes a terrible catastrophe but it seems like you know the human species is wired really to only change when it absolutely has to Right. When it hits the tree and goes, whoa, that that hurt. Maybe I won't do that again. <laughs> you know, people people are inclined to de- you know to defend their views. They have they have perspectives, and unless you're they're given really compelling reasons to to, to change that, uh, you know, they have a, their view about how government works and and how it doesn't. I gave my uh, one of my classes a uh, questionnaire, and which I posed the question: Do you see the conflict in American politics as a conflict between the haves and the have-not, or a difference between the average citizen and the government and those who depend on the government. And I also asked them their ideological identification, and it sorted out very neatly. Liberals uh, were much more likely, more than twice as likely, to see it as between haves and have-nots. Conservatives uh, sort of hearkening back to Ronald Reagan's, uh, you know, government is the is the problem. They saw the conflict in society as really be- between average American and uh, the government and those who are uh, dependent on the government. Yeah, well, they're both wrong. That's <laughs> easy. <All right. laughs> so I think those differences aren't going to go away. That's what we have, and I think what we have to do is somehow. Get both sides to say, well, okay, that's great. You have, you have your views, I have mine. We love it, but, you know, we, but we're all Americans, and we have we're confronting these problems, and we can't just stand on principle till we all go down. And unfortunately, that's been a kind of a, a, a view, sort of a heroic view of politics in American politics forever. The profiles and courage idea that you know people stand their ground. You don't have 
you look at Mount Rushmore and you won't find Henry Clay up there. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the compromisers are uh, you know, the Everett Dirksons and yeah. those guys are not up there. It's the, the people have the, it's the Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the, and, and we, the Harry Truman, give him hell Harry. Uh, and those are the characters that are, uh, that we revere. And the people who are more, somewhat more practical are, are seen as shady deal makers. Uh, so we have to do something in our culture to to break that, to get more practice. Well, we are uh, running quickly out of time. Antonio, I'll give you the last word. Are we going to survive this? <laughs> of course. As pessimistic as I can be about some of these things, I think that, uh, you know, our history suggests that we always come out of stuff, maybe tired, a little bit uh, bruised, but hopefully, you know, more conscious of each other and what what's involved in being civic, you know, a citizen. I think you know what's the choice, Joe. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, turn it around. If, you know, right. if we don't survive, move. What, what, <laughs> we could move to another country. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree completely. We've got here. I agree completely well, with Antonio. You have to at, at some point where you know practicality has to take over. It's just it's just very grueling getting there. Well, thank you both today very much. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. This has been great. I'd like to thank author Antonio Amali and be sure and get his book called The Ones They Left Behind and A House United. And also, Jim Campbell, thank you so much, the UB Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University at Buffalo SUNY. And make sure you pick up his book, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. Thank you both for being a guest. Jim, thank you very much for for taking the time with us today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading Antonio's book. Well, thank or you. books. It's great, great conversation. Antonio, thank you very much. I wanted to also thank you for being a guest on the program today. I enjoyed it, too. We would like to thank you for joining us today on the Literary Roundtable, and we hope that you will join us again soon. Be sure to check out our website at literaryroundtable.com, where you can find out about all of our guests that will be joining us in the future. If you would like to submit questions for any of our guests, you can tweet us at at literaryrt, or you can email us your questions to lrtquestions at gmail.com. I'm your host, Joe Marsh, and I hope you will pull up a chair and join us for our next Literary Roundtable, where you are always welcome. Music provided by Jazar and David Zeste.